Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, kidnapping, murder, and sexual abuse of children. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It's 1975, and Sandy Chipman just got out of jail. It was a short sentence, 30 days for writing a bad check. Now, as she turns the knob of her front door, she's smiling. She can't wait to see her husband, Brandon, and her four young children. But when she steps inside, the house is empty. Her family is gone. Sandy's confusion quickly turns into panic. She calls around, knocks on doors, and eventually finds her two middle daughters living in an orphanage. Apparently, her husband gave up the girls without her knowledge or consent. But Sandy has no idea where Brandon or her other two kids, six-week-old Philip and six-year-old Suzanne, are now. She'll spend the next 40 years looking for her babies and wondering what kind of man her husband really was. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're covering a labyrinthine story full of twists, turns, and deception. We've got three cold cases, all linked by one man. He was a liar, a manipulator, a fugitive constantly on the run from the law. Anytime the police closed in on him, he assumed a new identity and slipped through their grasp. If that sounds incredible, get ready, because it's just the beginning. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., 
And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. If you're a fan of true crime, and you probably are if you're listening to this, you've likely heard a lot of stories about serial killers. People whose names we remember because they've become synonymous with evil, because they represent our worst fears realized. And you've almost certainly asked yourself, why do they do what they do? What motivates that level of cruelty? And how do they get away with it for so long? Today, we're going to explore those questions while we talk about a killer and serial kidnapper you might not know. Maybe because he went by so many different names in so many different places. But wherever he traveled, he always left fear and destruction in his wake. These are the crimes of Franklin Delano Floyd. It's January of 1989. Tampa, Florida is decked out with old Christmas lights, but the neon sign of the Mons Venus Strip Club shines brightest of all. It's one of Tampa's most lavish clubs. Professional athletes and millionaires are regular clientele. Inside, two dancers, 18-year-old Cheryl Ann Camesso and 19-year-old Sharon Marshall, get ready for their shifts. They only met recently. They're both new to town, known as drifters, but they've got good heads on their shoulders. When she's not dancing, Sharon's often seen reading books in the dressing room. If co-workers try to pull her into club drama, she almost always redirects the conversation to a more positive subject. Her baby son, Michael. He's the apple of her eye. The reason she wants to be successful. The reason she saves money, never drinks or uses drugs, and holds on to dreams of one day going to college. Cheryl's just as driven, but unlike Sharon, she sees adult entertainment as a long-term career. She's looking for ways to move up in the industry. That's why she starts talking to Sharon's dad, Warren Marshall. Warren's in his mid-40s. A lot of people say he's creepy. He tends to hang around the club while his daughter is working and never lets her out of his sight. Nobody really knows what's going on with Sharon and Warren. Their relationship just seems off. Other dancers warn Cheryl to keep her distance. But Warren claims to have connections in the pornography industry in Los Angeles, and Cheryl thinks he could be the key to her success. Over the next few months, she grows closer to Sharon, meaning she also sidles up to Warren. Things are going well. At one point, Warren even does a topless photo shoot of Cheryl, promising he'll send along her pictures to his contacts in Hollywood. But then it all falls apart. One night, Cheryl lets Warren take her out on his boat on the nearby Lake Okeechobee. While they're on the water, Warren starts making sexual advances. Cheryl turns him down and Warren explodes. He tries to physically attack her. Cheryl's so terrified that she jumps overboard, 
She swims to shore and has to hitchhike all the way home. It's traumatic and also heartbreaking. She'd hoped Warren would be a professional ally, but he was just taking advantage of her. Cheryl's disappointment soon gives way to rage. She wants revenge. She knows Warren's daughter, Sharon Marshall, doesn't report all the money she makes at work. A lot of it is cash tips, so it's easy and pretty common to try to avoid paying one's fair share of taxes. In Sharon's case, it allows her to receive welfare checks to pad out her income. Cheryl knows that Sharon and Warren depend on that extra money, and she's boiling with anger at Warren, so she decides to hurt him. She calls social services and tells authorities Sharon's been skirting the system. Her plan works. Pretty soon, Sharon's welfare checks are suspended. Warren is furious. One day in March 1989, he calls one of Cheryl's friends. He says he knows Cheryl's the one who turned them in, and she's going to have to answer for it. It's not just about the welfare money. Sharon and her baby son Michael were on Medicaid, and now they've lost their coverage. Fair or not, by ratting them out, Cheryl's put the family in a serious financial bind. Not long after this, some of Cheryl's co-workers see her and Warren arguing in the club's parking lot, apparently while Sharon is inside working a shift. Nobody can hear what they're saying, but they both look livid. Later, another dancer hears screaming from the parking lot. She goes outside and sees Warren trying to pull Cheryl into his car. Bouncers have to run over and intervene. Warren lets Cheryl go and speeds away. Soon after this incident, Warren and Sharon Marshall abruptly leave town. Mysteriously, their trailer burns down soon after they move away. And they are not the only ones to disappear. At the same time, Cheryl stops coming into work. It's not clear whether she got sick of the environment, got a new job, or moved to a different town. She's a drifter, after all, so no one's very surprised when they don't hear from her again. Even Cheryl's father, John, doesn't think much of her absence at first. It's not unusual for him to go a while without talking to his daughter. She's known to run away and drop off the map without warning. But as the weeks pass, he starts to feel like something might be wrong. John calls around. The rest of the family hasn't heard from Cheryl for over a month. In June 1989, John officially reports his daughter missing. The police conduct an investigation, but it doesn't go very far. Cheryl had an inconsistent schedule, moved often, and didn't keep anyone updated on her whereabouts. She could be anywhere. Her case is cold almost immediately. And it seems like that's the end of the story. At least until 10 months later. It's just after midnight in April 1990. In Oklahoma City, the spring air is heavy with mist. 
Delbert Ray Collins and two of his friends are driving down a dark service road just outside of town when they see a shoe in the middle of the street. Delbert slows. About 200 feet away, he sees a shape lying in the gutter. A woman convulsing. Groceries are scattered around her. A loaf of bread, two bottles of Dr. Pepper, package of cookies, and a broken antenna and windshield wiper. I know what you're thinking. Cheryl Ann Camesso has finally been found. But this isn't her. Now, we'll come back to her story soon, so keep her, Sharon, and Warren in mind. But for now, Delbert and his friends call paramedics, who soon arrive at the scene. The woman is rushed to the nearest hospital. At first, doctors assume she's been involved in a hit and run. But the woman doesn't have any broken bones or external bleeding, which is surprising if she was hit by a car. Instead, her most serious injury is a hematoma, or an internal collection of blood, on the back of her head. For doctors, it's puzzling. But then things start to make more sense. The next morning, a man arrives at the hospital. He introduces himself as Clarence Hughes and identifies the injured woman as his wife, Tanya. From the jump, something about Clarence seems strange. He has almost no emotional reaction to seeing his wife in a coma. When the doctor explains that Tanya's brain is bruised and she's in serious condition, all Clarence does is request that no visitors be allowed in to see her. But when Clarence leaves the hospital, a visitor does show up. One of Tanya's co-workers, Connie. A doctor pulls Connie aside and tells her this was no car accident. Connie feared as much. In fact, she thinks she knows who might have hurt Tanya. And the story she tells the doctors might sound familiar. Connie met Tanya the previous fall at a Tulsa, Oklahoma strip club called Passions. Tanya was bright and hardworking. She never drank or used drugs. Between sets, she would read books and crochet clothing for her son, her son named Michael. But Connie and other dancers at the club couldn't help but notice Tanya's husband, Clarence. He always drove her to and from work and hung around in the parking lot during her shifts. As author Matt Birkbeck writes in his book, A Beautiful Child, the staff all found him creepy and controlling. Not to mention he was at least 20 years older than his wife. According to Connie, Tanya would sometimes show up to work covered in bruises. Some of the other dancers tried to convince her to leave her husband, but she was afraid. She said she'd tried to run away twice before, but Clarence found her. He threatened to kill her if she tried again. That spring, right before Tanya was found on the road, she'd reportedly come up with a plan to leave Clarence. She was determined to get away from him. That, Connie thinks, is how Tanya ended up in a coma. She tried to escape her husband, and it all went wrong. The hospital staff tells Connie she needs to take her suspicions to the police, but then 
Clarence shows up. Connie leaves before he sees her. Clarence is in and out of the hospital for the next few days. Tanya's condition appears to be improving. Then it takes a nosedive. She's put on life support. It looks like she's not going to make it. Hospital staff calls Clarence and lets him know his wife doesn't have much time. All he says is he can't make it to the hospital that day. He asks for his wife's organs to be donated and her body cremated. He doesn't even want a funeral. Tanya dies later that day, and when a medical examiner performs an autopsy on her remains, he finds something very suspicious. The medical examiner finds that Tanya Hughes suffered blunt force trauma to the back of her head. That's how her brain was bruised. Like doctors suspected, the injury isn't consistent with a hit-and-run accident. Instead, her death is ruled a homicide. Police in Oklahoma City start investigating in May of 1990. Their first person of interest is Tanya's husband, Clarence. So authorities go to the Hughes home in Tulsa. It looks like Clarence has already skipped town. But someone is still nearby. Tanya's son, Michael. Authorities learn that Clarence placed two-year-old Michael in temporary foster care on May 1st. He said he would return to pick up the boy, who he claimed was his child, in a week but Clarence never came back to get him. Michael's living with a foster family in Choctaw, about 20 miles outside of Oklahoma City, and he displays signs of serious emotional distress. He cries constantly. He won't sleep or talk. In fact, at two years old, it seems Michael has never learned to speak. He's clearly traumatized. But just as police are learning about Michael... They get a call that changes everything. It's an insurance agent. He says a man by the name of Clarence Hughes just attempted to cash out two life insurance policies on his wife, Tanya. They were worth a total of $80,000. But receiving payment required him to provide his social security number. When he did the agent realized the number didn't match with the name Clarence Hughes. It belonged to someone else. It appears Clarence has been using a fake identity. His real name? Franklin Delano Floyd. The police were already suspicious of the so-called Clarence. Knowing his real name only makes them more concerned because Franklin Delano Floyd has a rap sheet that would send a shiver down anyone's spine. He ran away from his rural Georgia home at 15 and started racking up criminal offenses. At 16, he was taken into custody for breaking into a Sears store. Over the coming years, he was arrested for an attempted prison escape and for robbing a bank. His crimes became increasingly violent and predatory. At one point... He was convicted of child molestation after being accused of raping a four-year-old girl. 
In January 1973, 30-year-old Floyd was out on parole when he tried to kidnap a woman from a gas station. She escaped and Floyd was arrested, but he posted bail and skipped town. He's been on the run using various pseudonyms ever since. That's 17 years as a fugitive. Now, police suspect him of Tanya Hughes' murder, and they are determined to track him down. It takes six weeks, but authorities eventually find Floyd living in a trailer in Augusta, Georgia. They arrest him on a fugitive warrant and put him back in prison for the 1973 attempted kidnapping. However, he's not charged with the murder of his wife. The Oklahoma City Police keep investigating, but they can't find any concrete evidence linking Floyd to the crime. They do figure out that Tanya Hughes wasn't his wife's real name. She was also using a pseudonym. By this point, you've probably connected the dots. Tanya Hughes is none other than Sharon Marshall, the Mons Venus strip club dancer who read books in the dressing room and was always talking about her son. Well, that puts you one step ahead of authorities because at this point, they have no idea about her and Floyd's, aka Warren's, life in Florida. They don't know anything about Floyd's fights with Cheryl Ann Camesso, the woman who reported Sharon to social services then disappeared. And Floyd certainly isn't going to tell them. He's also not forthcoming with information about Michael. He insists he's the boy's biological father, but given his history, authorities don't trust him. They tell Floyd the only way he'll ever regain custody of Michael is by submitting to a paternity test and proving he's Michael's dad. Floyd refuses the test for months until a court order forces him to comply. As police suspected, Michael is not Floyd's biological son, which means all Floyd's parental rights are immediately terminated. And since Floyd won't say a word about who actually fathered the boy, Michael remains in foster care. Which is probably for the best. Michael flourishes with his new foster family. He starts talking, calling his foster parents Mama and Daddy. The only remnants of his past life are his nightmares. The ones where he's locked in a dark room, crying out for his mother. But now he's in a safe place. Over the next couple years, he grows into a happy, well-adjusted kid. Then in March of 1993, after serving 33 months in prison, Floyd is released on parole and he goes looking for Michael. It's Monday, September 12th, 1994, just after 9 a.m., Franklin Delano Floyd walks into Indian Meridian Elementary School in Choctaw, Oklahoma. He's got no business there, but for some reason, nobody stops him. He's able to go right into Principal James Davis's office. He locks eyes with a well-dressed administrator, sits down, and says, I've been grieving for four years, and I'm ready to die. I want you to help me get my son. Then he reaches into his pocket and shows the handle of a gun. 
Principal Davis stares at the weapon, his heart racing. He knows his life is on the line, but even more importantly, so are the lives of his 500 students. He swallows hard, tries to stay calm, tries to think of a way out of this situation. But all he can do is follow Floyd's orders. He leads Floyd to Michael's first grade classroom. Struggling to keep his voice from shaking, the principal asks the six-year-old to come to his office. Michael, as usual, is all smiles. According to author Matt Birkbeck, he gets up, puts on his Aladdin backpack, and happily follows Davis into the hall. But Michael quickly realizes something's wrong. Even though he hasn't seen Franklin Delano Floyd in years, he remembers him, and he's terrified of him. Michael looks to the principal to keep him safe, but Davis is just as scared. Floyd forces them both out to the parking lot. He asks where Davis's car is. Unsure what else to do, Principal Davis tells the truth. He points to a white Ford pickup truck. Floyd tells him to get in. Floyd settles into the passenger seat. Michael sits in the center. Principal Davis drives, gripping the steering wheel so hard his knuckles turn white until Floyd directs him to stop in a wooded area nearby. While Michael stays in the truck with the radio on, Floyd walks Davis into the woods. The principal looks for escape routes and finds none. He thinks about fighting back, but Floyd has a gun. Davis has no options. Floyd handcuffs him to a tree and duct tapes his mouth closed. Principal Davis braces himself, likely wondering if he's about to die. But then, Floyd walks away. A few moments later, Davis hears his truck start up and drive off. Davis spends the next two hours screaming for help. Eventually, he's rescued. He can't believe he made it out alive. He tells police what happened and local authorities realize a man with a long history of violence has now kidnapped a vulnerable six-year-old boy. They call the FBI for help. Special Agent Joe Fitzpatrick reads everything they have on Franklin Delano Floyd, his arrest records, his wife's death, his custody battle for Michael. Now, add threatening Principal Davis with a gun, abducting Michael straight out of class, and making off with a stolen vehicle to that list. Authorities have to find this man. Fitzpatrick sends agents to interview anyone who might know Floyd. They search his room at the halfway house he'd been living in since his parole. And Agent Fitzpatrick finally learns what you already know. Floyd and the woman they knew as Tanya Hughes had previously gone by the pseudonyms Warren and Sharon Marshall. But for Fitzpatrick, this only raises more questions. He doesn't know Tanya, aka Sharon's, real name. He doesn't know her real connection to Floyd. First, she was his daughter, then she was his wife. Is it possible that this twisted man really changed his daughter's name and then married her? Or is there something else going on? What's the truth and what's the lie? 
All Fitzpatrick can figure out is that Floyd dragged Tanya, aka Sharon, across the country for years. They moved from Oklahoma City to Louisville to Atlanta to Phoenix to Tampa. By now, Floyd and Michael could be in any of those places, or none of them. Weeks pass with no breakthroughs. Then, on November 9th, Fitzpatrick gets a call from the Department of Transportation. A man named Warren Marshall just tried to renew his driver's license in Louisville, Kentucky. Fitzpatrick flies to Louisville that afternoon. He leads a team of FBI agents to the used car lot where Floyd had gotten a job as a salesman. With little fanfare, Floyd is arrested for Michael's kidnapping. But there's a problem. Michael is nowhere to be found. They search Floyd's apartment and find nothing. They interview the neighbors, Floyd's co-workers, and none of them recall seeing a child with Floyd in the weeks since he arrived in town. When they interrogate Floyd, he won't say a word about where the boy is. But other people will, and their statements are chilling. One of Floyd's friends from jail says he didn't just confess to killing Michael. He said he threw the boy off a bridge. But it seems Floyd can't keep his own story straight. His sister tells police he called her and said he drowned Michael in the bathtub. He's repeatedly admitting to murder, but changing the details about how exactly he did it. The FBI searches every inch of the area, every lake and river, and they don't find any trace of Michael. None of the testimony about Floyd's various confessions ends up being admissible in court. Ultimately, Floyd is only charged with kidnapping. The proceedings take a few months, but in April 1995, Floyd is found guilty of kidnapping Michael Hughes. He's sentenced to 52 years in prison without the possibility of parole. Since he's 51 years old, that amounts to a life sentence. But it's still not the end of the story. Far from it. After all, we still don't know what happened to Michael, not to mention another dangling thread you might have forgotten about. With Floyd behind bars, detectives take the opportunity to question him about another cold case the disappearance of Cheryl Ann Camesso. There have been significant developments in Cheryl's case since she went missing. And as you might have guessed, Floyd has some explaining to do. Nineteen-year-old Cheryl Ann Camesso disappeared from Tampa, Florida in 1989, shortly after getting on the bad side of a man she knew as Warren Marshall. By the spring of 1995, that's six years later, the FBI know that Warren Marshall is actually convicted kidnapper Franklin Delano Floyd. With Floyd now in prison, they approach him to see if he's got anything to say about Cheryl's disappearance. As it turns out, there have been some major developments in her case in just the last few months. Earlier that March, a landscaping worker found a skeleton in the swamps of Pinellas County, Florida. A root had grown through the bones of the right leg. A forensic botanist said that part of the root was several years old, 
meaning the remains could have been there for six years. Lead fragments were recovered from the skull, consistent with two 22 caliber bullets. The cause of death, two gunshots to the head. Eventually, the remains were identified as Cheryl Ann Camesso. This development seemed to open the floodgates because two days after the skull was found, another huge discovery fell in the FBI's lap. A mechanic in Kansas was working on a truck he'd recently purchased at an auction. He knew the white Ford pickup had been stolen in Oklahoma and later found in Dallas, Texas. What he may not have known is that the previous owner of the truck was James Davis, the principal of Indian Meridian Elementary School. This was the truck Michael Hughes was kidnapped in. While fixing up the vehicle, the mechanic found something hidden on top of the gas tank, an envelope full of photos. Most of them were of women and young girls in sexually explicit poses. Some showed a woman who'd been bound and severely beaten. He gave the photos to the police, who sent them to the FBI. Special Agent Joe Fitzpatrick examined the pictures himself. It took a while, but the woman who was bound and beaten was eventually identified as Cheryl. In the photos, she has swelling and redness around her right cheek, consistent with a fracture that was found on her skull. Based on the forensics, that fracture must have occurred shortly before Cheryl died. Which means Cheryl's killer must have taken the photos, and the last person to drive that truck was Franklin Delano Floyd. It's not hard for investigators to put two and two together, which is why they lay all this evidence in front of Floyd, hoping for a quick confession. Floyd won't give it to them. They're forced to turn to a grand jury. At the hearing, authorities lay out everything they know about Cheryl. Her argument with Floyd shortly before her disappearance, her body left to decay in a swamp, the photos of her being tortured found in the truck Floyd had stolen. On November 12, 1997, the grand jury indicts Floyd for first-degree murder. It takes five years for the case to go to trial, but once the proceedings are underway, they go quickly. In 2002, after just nine days of testimony and four hours of deliberation, Floyd is found guilty of murdering Cheryl Ann Camesso. This time, he's sentenced to death. But that's still not the end of the story. Authorities are still wondering what really happened to Michael. Who was Sharon Marshall? And what's her connection to Floyd? Some answers appear to be on the horizon because something else was also found in that envelope from the Ford pickup. Among the nearly 100 photographs, investigators pieced together a series depicting the same girl over the course of her whole adolescence. There's pictures of her as a child, a teenager, and an adult. Many of the photos are pornographic. When the photos land in the hands of Special Agent Fitzpatrick, he recognizes the girl immediately. It's Sharon Marshall, 
aka Tanya Hughes. As far as investigators can tell, this woman was never a willing partner in crime. It appears Floyd kidnapped her as a young child. It's a major discovery, their first real clue about who Sharon could be and how this twisted story all started. It also completely changes the way authorities think about this case. If anything, it makes them even more determined to find Sharon's true name. But they don't know where to turn next, because based on her age, Floyd must have kidnapped this girl in the mid-1970s. And that presents a serious problem. There was no centralized database for missing child cases until the mid-1980s, Finding the identity of a child who was kidnapped 10 years before that is going to be nearly impossible, especially considering the FBI has no idea what city or even what state she was taken from. Agent Fitzpatrick uses every tool at his disposal to search for the girl's true identity. He searches for years, but there's no progress. Eventually, Fitzpatrick retires with the investigation still incomplete. It's shelved for over a decade. Then, in 2013, the FBI does a cold case review of the Michael Hughes kidnapping. The next year, agents spend days interviewing Floyd in prison. And after 12 years on death row... The 71-year-old is unusually cooperative. It seems like he feels as if there's nothing left to lose. So he reveals two secrets, one of which he's been keeping for almost half his life. First, Floyd tells them the truth about what happened to Michael. On the long drive from Oklahoma City to Dallas, Floyd said the six-year-old's behavior was getting on his nerves. So he shot Michael twice in the back of the head and buried him off the interstate near the Oklahoma-Texas border. After this chilling admission, Floyd reveals Sharon Marshall's true identity. This is the story he tells. It was 1974. Floyd was on the run after skipping bail going by the name Brandon Williams. He met a woman named Sandy Chipman in North Carolina. After only a month of dating, Floyd proposed. The pair soon married and moved to Dallas with Sandy's four kids, three young girls and a baby boy. Then in 1975, Sandy was arrested for writing a bad check and had to spend 30 days in jail. When she got out, her new husband and children were gone. You already know Sandy found her two middle daughters living in an orphanage. It took decades, but she eventually found her son, too. He'd also been living with adoptive parents. The only child she couldn't find was her oldest daughter, Suzanne Savakis, because Floyd kept her. From the time she was six years old, Floyd and Suzanne bounced around the country, living under various pseudonyms. It's possible this was all part of Floyd's plan. He never saw Suzanne as a daughter. She was always his victim, 
He groomed her from childhood, then physically, sexually, and financially abused her. All the while, Suzanne attended public school, was involved in extracurriculars, and had a small circle of friends, none of whom knew her real name or understood what was going on in her home. Suzanne talked more about her plans for the future than her present life. In high school, she joined the Air Force ROTC and dreamed of becoming an aerospace engineer. As her graduation neared, she got accepted to her dream school, Georgia Tech. But before she could enroll, Floyd whisked her away out of town. None of her friends ever heard from her again. A year later, Suzanne was working at a hotel restaurant when she got pregnant. The father was one of her co-workers. Suzanne was excited, but as soon as she started showing, Floyd once again forced her to pack up and leave town. He took her to Tampa, Florida. When Suzanne had the baby, she named him Michael. From here... You know most of the story. Suzanne worked at the Mons Venus Strip Club, where she met Cheryl Camesso. Cheryl reported Suzanne to social services. Enraged, Floyd murdered Cheryl, and he and Suzanne fled the state. Floyd likely knew authorities would be on the lookout for him and his so-called daughter, so he fabricated entirely new identities for both of them. He forced Suzanne to marry him and pretend Michael was his son. Eventually, they settled in Tulsa, where Suzanne got a job at Passions. Floyd made Suzanne work at the strip club and hand over her money to him at the end of a long night, while she held on to dreams of a different life, going to college, supporting herself and Michael on her own. That was always Suzanne's goal, to make a better life for her son. In the spring of 1990, she was ready to make a break for it. She made one last-ditch effort to escape Floyd, the man who'd abused and exploited her for the last 14 years. Within days, Suzanne was dead. Even during his tell-all confession, Floyd refuses to talk about Suzanne's death. He says he's innocent and knows nothing about it. Her murder remains officially unsolved. But it's clear that Floyd victimized Suzanne over and over all throughout her life. He stole her from her mother and subjected her to a life of terror and exploitation. And as we've discussed, Suzanne was far from his only victim. Nobody knows exactly what motivates people like Franklin Delano Floyd. Psychologists have theories. For example, many child predators were mistreated as children, and that was certainly the case for Floyd. His childhood was fraught with sexual, physical, and emotional abuse, as well as stints spent in an orphanage. In interviews with investigators, Floyd talked about how traumatic his early years were. According to psychologists from Coventry University and the University of Kent, early trauma can lead people to develop maladaptive thoughts and behaviors. One possibility is that victims of childhood abuse 
see adults as intimidating or unrelatable, even as they become adults themselves. Some might gravitate towards children who they believe can better meet their emotional needs and sexual desires. It's obviously unhealthy, to say the least. And in Floyd's case, it's possible he saw six-year-old Suzanne as a victim he could mold into whatever he wanted her to be. That's what grooming is. A long-term and deeply perverse effort to gain a child's trust and loyalty. An attempt to alter their sense of self and break down their defenses. A way to exploit, manipulate, and control them for personal gain. Floyd said himself that he was traumatized, hurt, so he might have been hoping to turn Suzanne into a sort of, quote, partner who would never hurt him or leave him or have any power over him. He wanted her to be completely subject to his whims. Once she had Michael, he became another tool Floyd could use to keep her in line. Perhaps kidnapping and murdering Michael was yet another way of exhibiting control over Suzanne even after her death, a refusal to let her escape his cruelty in any sense. You might be wondering, after all this, how did Suzanne seem so normal? How did she excel in school, get into college, and form close friendships with all this happening behind closed doors? The answer is probably twofold. First, Suzanne was smart and strong. She held on to hope that she would one day escape Floyd. That and the love she had for her son kept her going. Second, Floyd likely wanted Suzanne to seem normal. If she appeared to be healthy and happy, then he looked like a good father. That meant there would be no rumors, no suspicion, his secret would be safe. Still, that fell apart as the years went on. At Mons, Venus, and Passions, Suzanne's co-workers could tell something wasn't right, but they weren't able to help her. It's chilling, and it's heartbreaking to know the fear and pain Suzanne dealt with all alone. But it's important to know stories like Suzanne's are incredibly rare. According to statistics from the U.S. Department of Justice, kidnapping accounts for about 1% of crimes against children. Of those victims, more than 99% return home. A small minority, between 1 and 4%, incur major injuries. Less than 1% are killed. Of course, that doesn't bring much comfort to Suzanne's loved ones. Whether these things happen often or not, that doesn't change the fact that it happened to her. At least, in a story with few bright spots, we can end on one. Suzanne's mother learned what happened to her. Her family didn't receive justice, but they did get the truth, and that made one important change possible. In 1990, Suzanne's gravestone was marked with the name Franklin Delano Floyd gave her, Tanya. But in 2017, it was finally replaced. Now it reads, Suzanne Marie Savakis, 
devoted mother and friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with another cold case. For more information on Franklin Delano Floyd, amongst the many sources we used, we found A Beautiful Child by Matt Birkbeck and the Netflix documentary Girl in the Picture, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from Parcast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Kate Gallagher, edited by Karis Allen and Andrew Kelleher, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. I'm Carter Roy. 